So last week uh, was my first lecture in this series uh, on the topic of Buddhist morality. So um, maybe there was uh, a few of you uh, here today that weren't here last week. Uh, and uh, so uh, we talked about what morality is. Um, what are the conventional definitions and notion of morality? And we compared that with uh, what the Buddhist concept of morality is. Uh, the Buddhist concept of morality uh, is rooted in the universal law of cause and effect, and what we call causality. That the practice of all goodness uh, leads to happiness, and the practice of evil uh, leads to suffering. So there are three major topics uh, within the Buddhist practice, uh, what we call the threefold training. So it's sila, samadhi, and prajna. So sila refers to morality, samadhi refers to stillness of mind or concentration, and prajna refers to wisdom. Just like in order to keep a healthy body, we need three major things. We need to harmonize our diet. We have to take in a proper diet. We have to have enough exercise, and we have to have proper rest. So these three factors come together to bring us physical well-being. What about the mind? How do we develop a healthy mind? Well, to develop a healthy mind, we need these three factors of morality, stillness of mind, and wisdom. And we first develop our mind by working on morality. And the reason why is because all the crude and habitual thoughts that we constantly give rise to they manifest themselves into the speech and actions that we commit. And morality is a way for us to refrain or abstain from doing the things that can lead us to suffer. And so we start by addressing all the defilements of speech and mind. And that's the goal of Buddhist morality, to properly take care of all the negative speech and actions that we commit often unconsciously uh, without us even knowing. Last week, I also talked about why we must take the precepts. One of the key differences between one who has practiced just goodness or uh, random acts of charity and kindness and someone who has taken the Buddhist precepts is that someone who just practices goodness does so dependent upon a number of circumstances. Um, they have to um, see a person who deserves their kindness, and they have to develop a certain kind of emotion towards that person, uh, emotions of pity or uh, generosity, uh, in order to uh, help that person out of his condition. Uh, whereas someone who has taken the Buddhist precepts upholds goodness unconditionally. So it doesn't matter whether or not that person is his friend or his foe. Regardless of his relationship to that person, he will extend and render compassion and goodness towards him or her unconditionally. So instead of being led by our emotion, we're being led by our vow. And the vow is to uphold goodness unconditionally. I also talked about the importance of taking the vow and being goal-oriented. 
When I elaborated on this, I talked about Alfred Adler's study on goal orientation. Now, Alfred Adler, he was a psychotherapist back in uh, the early 20th century, and he stressed the importance of goal orientation. Um, he stressed uh, the significance of setting a goal for ourselves. Because when we set a goal for ourselves, what happens is we create an image in the mind. And that becomes a self-image that we strive towards. So when he operated on women to beautify their faces, he noticed that after the operation, when the look improved, the personalities of these women also changed. So because the self-image of themselves had changed, their personality and their behavior also changed. So we have to realize that it's very important for us to set this goal for ourselves to uphold goodness and to practice morality. If you take the example of us monks and nuns, why do we shave our heads and why do we dress ourselves in these robes? Is it just so that other people can identify us as being monks and nuns, being different from other people? That's partially a reason, but I think one of the main reasons is because by shaving our heads and by dressing ourselves, ourselves in these robes, we're taking on a new self-image. We have a new goal that we've set for ourselves. Uh, and this goal is we wish to renunciate uh, all worldly pleasures, uh, all material enjoyments um, for the sake of developing our minds to liberate ourselves from suffering and to help all sentient beings. So when we look at ourselves in the mirror every day, when we see this shaved head and, and us dressed in these robes, this is what we remind ourselves of. This is the self-image that we've created for ourselves. And naturally, because we begin to identify with this self-image, we work towards it step by step. And so that's also why we've seen some people who had very different personalities before they be became a monk or a nun. But after they became a monk or a nun, it's like they were a completely different person. And what's the reason for that? Well, it's because they have a new self-image. They have a new goal that they've set for themselves. And that goal is reflected in their mind as their self-image. I mentioned that by taking the precepts, we're expanding our object of attention to include all sentient beings. So it's just not the people around you, your family and friends, but it's all sentient beings across all six realms of existence in samsara. Um, someone who practices random acts of kindness uh, may not have such a big scope. They might only help people when it's convenient to do so, or under the right circumstances, or those who are only close to them. But for one who takes the precepts, that goodness is expanded to include all sentient beings. Uh, within the six realms. So that's the material that we covered last time. Uh, what I'd like to talk about today is I'd like to continue uh, to talk about why we have to take the precepts. Now, normally in our daily lives, we come into contact with various sense objects through our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and body. And 
most of what we are exposed ourselves to, like what we see in the internet, in TV, uh, in movies, in magazines, and the type of places that we like to hang out in, like bars and clubs, uh, they give rise to a lot of toxic emotions within us uh, because they revolve around things like sex, violence, and material pursuits. And over time, constant exposure to these toxic sense objects can lead to obsession and addiction. And this subsequently leads to speech and action like killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, and drinking. And all these things lead us into a lot of suffering. So in order to protect us from running into these problems, we have to properly guard our senses. Now, as a layperson, it may be very difficult to not come into contact with some of these sense objects. Uh, unless you follow the monastic path, like us monks and nuns, where we have to completely sever all contact uh, with these uh, unwholesome uh, sense objects, it can be very difficult to do that uh, for a layperson. But even if these sense objects come into your mind in the form of toxic emotions, we still have to find a way to prevent it from leading us to commit unwholesome actions. And so what do we use to protect ourselves? We protect ourselves by taking the precepts. So by upholding the precepts, we can build the energy of mindfulness within us to be aware of our thoughts, speech, and actions, and to stop us from committing unwholesome deeds. Now, the analogy that I like to use is the gatekeeper. So taking the precepts is like having a gatekeeper in your mind. And this gatekeeper prevents the mind from expressing its mental defilements. So the defilements of desire, uh, hatred, and ignorance into forms of harmful speech and action. So what the gatekeeper is, it's a force within us that stops us from committing unwholesome actions. Most people will think that in order to develop your mindfulness, you need to practice sitting meditation. But really, taking the precepts is the first step in building the energy of mindfulness within you. This mindfulness guides you to abstain from doing the things that lead you to suffering and to practice the things that lead you to happiness. So the mindfulness that I'm talking about here is not really about holding uh, all objects in bare awareness without differentiating um, or discriminating. But it's more about developing a sense of vigilance uh, in your mind that stops you from committing unwholesome actions. So we should ask ourselves, why must we have a gatekeeper? Well, since time immemorial, we've been slaves to our negative emotions and have been following our deluded thoughts. So in the course of our daily lives, we come into contact with many people and many things that lead us to give rise to mental defilements. So we might get into an argument with someone that causes a lot of negative emotions within us. And those negative emotions may compel us to want to 
uh, do harm against that person. Or we might see an object that we strongly desire and give rise to feelings of greed and craving that motivate us to want to steal it. It's our diluted thinking that's dominated by our greed, hatred, and ignorance that causes us to create a lot of evil karma, like killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, and harmful speech. Now, the whole point of having the gatekeeper is to have a guard within us, within our minds, so that it can stop us from doing the things that lead us to suffer. Now, the gatekeeper does not have the ability to remove our mental defilements. But what it can do is it can act as a stopping force to prevent us from committing wrongdoing. In order to remove your mental obstruction, you still need to practice stillness of mind and develop wisdom to penetrate to the reality of things as they really are in order to remove those mental obstructions. But what the gatekeeper does is it stops us from committing wrongdoing. It counteracts our habitual tendencies to succumb to our mental defilements by stopping them from materializing into harmful speech and actions. So as I mentioned earlier in my lecture last time, it's important that we have to go through a formal ceremony to take the precepts. The formal ceremony is the relative means that we use to arrive at the absolute truth. Uh, it's what helps us affirm our vow to end all evil, to practice all goodness, and to help all sentient beings. Now, there's another very important reason for this formal ceremony, and that is to plant the gatekeeper within our consciousness. So when we receive the precepts with full devotion and sincerity, we've planted a low gatekeeper within the store of our consciousness. Now, during the precept ceremony, uh, there's one section where we're asked to make three visualizations. So the first visualization is that because of our noble vow to end all evil, practice all goodness, and to help all sentient beings, the earth is touched and it begins to tremble. And meritorious clouds of positive energy begin to rise above us. The second image that we visualize is these clouds of positive energy gathering above our heads in the shape of a canopy. And then the final visualization is that the energy permeates into us through the crown of our head and throughout our entire body. And all the negative energy that's left in our body flows out from, uh, from our body through the soles of our feet in the form of black water. Now, it's this visualization that plants the important gatekeeper within the consciousness. So when we've done it properly and with full devotion and sincerity, then that positive energy that permeates into our body, that's the gatekeeper. So essentially what we've done is we've planted the seed of ending all evil, practicing all goodness, and helping all sentient beings that will stay stored in our consciousness for the rest of our life. Now, the gatekeeper serves two very important functions. As I mentioned to you, it stops you from committing speech and actions that lead to your suffering. 
So before the opportunity arises, it prevents you from committing wrongdoing. Now the other important function is that if you have already committed uh, wrongful action or speech, the gatekeeper will lead you to evoke remorse and regret for your past transgressions. Now this is very important. Um, sometimes when our mental defilements are just too strong to overcome, the gatekeeper doesn't have the power to stop you from committing wrongdoing. But once the act has been done, the gatekeeper may still have the power to help you elicit positive feelings of remorse and guilt for your actions. And if we want to reduce the karmic effects of our negative actions, then it's very, very important for us to repent for our past mistakes and to evoke those feelings of uh, remorse and regret for our wrongdoings. And so why is repenting so important? Some people might think that repenting um, is just to seek forgiveness uh, from the Buddhas and the Buddhas Well, that's not the reason why we repent. The Buddhist concept of repentance uh, first requires us to understand that all karma is created by our own minds. So if we think of karma as a stream of energy in our mind, if we just let it flow continuously like a strong current without ever putting a stop to it, then that flow will just continue endlessly. And so if we're talking about some negative action or negative karma that we've created, it's a stream of negative energy in your mind. And if you don't put a stop to that flow, then the cycle of negative karma will just continue endlessly and unconsciously. So by repenting, what we're doing is we're putting a stop to the flow of defilements in our mind. Some people might think that after they do a negative action, um, that if they uh, make it up by doing um, an act of kindness, uh, that that uh, would counteract uh, the negative energy that they created from uh, their negative action. Um, but we have to first understand that the law of cause and effect tells us that goodness leads to happiness and evil leads to suffering. If you do an act of kindness, naturally you will receive the benefits of that in the form of some happiness. But that does not in and of itself counteract the negative karma that you've created. The only way that you can put a stop to that negative karma is through the process of repentance. Because if all you do is try to make it up with an act of kindness, you're not stopping the flow. Um, and in fact, you might even be acknowledging that act of uh, unwholesome behavior was acceptable uh, because you haven't shown your regret and your guilt for it. So it's important that we have to first repent. And the purpose of the gatekeeper is to evoke remorse and regret for our past mistakes. So by repenting, we're saying that we've recognized that what we've done was wrong and that we're committed to not making the same mistake in the future. And it's this commitment to change, to turn away from evil and towards goodness that stops the flow of defilements. And it's that stopping the flow that reduces 
the karmic effects of our bad actions. So let's talk a little bit about what the benefits of upholding the precepts are. Now the first benefit is observing the precepts will lead to a good reputation and respect from your family and peers. We know that someone who respects the rights of others by not killing, stealing, committing sexual misconduct, lying and drinking will also earn the respect of other people. And as someone who upholds the precepts, not only are you abstaining from doing the things that cause harm to people, but you're also actively practicing things that benefit and lead to uh, other people's happiness. So naturally, you'll earn other people's respect and build a good reputation for the virtuous conduct that you have. The second benefit of upholding the precepts is it leads to the accumulation of wholesome karma that brings about a rebirth in a higher realm of existence. So either the human or the heavenly realms. Now we should know that to have been born in this human realm as a human, we must have observed at least one precept in our previous life. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been born in this world. So if we don't want to be reborn in a realm that's characterized by deep suffering, like in the animal realm and the hungry ghost or the hell realms, then we must at least closely observe one precept. And really, the more precepts you follow, the more happiness you'll have in your life. Because not only are you not sowing the seeds that uh, lead to suffering, but you're also actively practicing goodness in your life. Now, if we can practice what we call the 10 virtues, which are abstaining from killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, insincere flattery, double-tongued speech, cursing, desire, hatred, and ignorance. So really, what's included in the five precepts, plus the thoughts of desire, hatred, and ignorance that we give rise to, then we can qualify to be reborn in the heavenly worlds after this life. But we should know that heaven isn't the ultimate destination. In fact, the Buddha did not speak highly of heaven at all. Because in the heavenly realm, there's so much luxury and comfort for you to enjoy that eventually what will happen is you'll lose interest and enthusiasm for your Dharma practice. And when your time is up in heaven, then you'll still need to be reborn again in one of the six realms of existence. And as heaven is at the top of the six realms, really the only place is to go down. So that's why the Buddha told us that it's easiest to succeed in the Buddhist practice as a human because in this human world there's enough suffering to motivate us to want to practice to find a way out of samsara. Now one of the other benefits uh, is that according to the Buddhist scriptures there are five devas guarding each precept that will protect those who uphold them. So when you follow the precepts not only will you be protected from uh, the karmic uh, consequences of uh, committing wrongdoing, uh, but there's also five devas that will actively protect you. Um, in times of trouble or difficulty, 
uh, they'll be there to assist you and to lend you a helping hand, um, oftentimes even without you even knowing. So you don't just earn the respect of your fellow peers and friends by taking the precepts, but you also earn the respect of heavenly devas. And finally, one of the other benefits is that by upholding the precepts, we allow ourselves to continue to develop right samadhi and prajna in our practice. So someone who doesn't practice sila, but tries to seek enlightenment only through meditation and study, will never find any success. It's through upholding the precepts that allows us to achieve full deliverance from suffering and attainment from nirvana. So the analogy would be, if we want to build a solid and stable house, we need to first work on building and setting the right foundation. We need to lay out the formwork properly. We need to pour the concrete. We need to make sure that we have a stable base on which to build that house. The practice is the same. In the Buddhist practice, you need to have sila as that solid foundation. Otherwise, whatever you build on top will not endure the elements and it won't stand the test of time. So it's very important that we first develop our sila to make sure that our practice is rooted firmly in the right foundation. So before I get into a detailed discussion of each of the precepts, which I'd like to get started on uh, next class, so we'll be covering each of the five precepts in detail. Um, I imagine that maybe we can only cover one or two uh, precepts uh, during each talk. Uh, so it might take two or three additional talks to finish this series off. Um, but before we get into uh, detail on each of the precepts, I'd like to share a few stories with you that show the benefits of upholding the precepts. So the first story is about Queen Malika, who is the first wife of King Prasenajit. Now King Prasenajit ruled the second largest and most powerful kingdom in India at the time of the Buddha. The kingdom was called Kosala, and the capital city of Kosala was Shravasti. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard of uh, the city Shravasti before. Um, it was uh, the place where Buddha Sakyamuni uh, spent a lot of his time propagating the teachings after his enlightenment. Now, during the time the Buddha was in Shravasti, there was a very rich merchant who owned many fine and precious treasures and jewelry that he decided to offer to King Prasenajit. Now the king was delighted when he saw all of this fine jewelry. And he called for his attendant to ask all his wives to come out. And he told them that he would award all the beautiful jewelry to the most beautiful one among them. So as soon as the wives heard about this from the attendant, they all became very excited. And they began to dress themselves in the most beautiful garments and adornments. They put on their finest makeup and hairdos. And they went before the king, hoping to be chosen as the most beautiful wife. Now, when all the wives were lined up in front of them, the king noticed that his first wife, Queen Malika, did not show up. So he asked his attendant why she wasn't there. And then the attendant replied that 
Queen Malachi was observing the eight precepts that day, which kept her from dressing and adorning herself with any makeup or jewelry. So she decided to stay in her room. So when the king heard about this, he became infuriated that his wife had not complied with his request. And so in a fit of rage, he took his sword and he rushed to Queen Malachi's room, hoping to instill some fear in her for not following his orders. When he opened the door, the king, upon seeing her, immediately forgot about all his anger, and he became entranced by what he saw. Even though Queen Malachi wasn't wearing any beautiful clothing or adornments, her entire body radiated glowing and alluring presence. He had not seen anything like this in her before. She looked even more dignified and beautiful than usual. So then the king, being very curious, asked her what she had done to acquire such a beautiful presence. And then the queen replied that that day was one of the six fasting days of the month, and she was observing the eight precepts as a way to abandon her mental defilements and cultivate the Dharma. So after hearing the queen's response, the king, without any hesitation, decided to bestow all the jewelry to Queen Malachi. Even though the queen wasn't dressed in um, attire that was fancy or beautiful, she was just dressed in simple attire, unlike all the other wives who were dressed up in the most beautiful garments and makeup, the beauty that she had was beyond what the best makeup or the finest jewelry could do. She possessed a purity and virtue that revealed itself through her appearance making her beauty so distinct that even the king had not seen anything like this before. But when the king offered all the jewelry to Queen Malachi, she graciously declined, and she explained to the king that because she was upholding the precepts that day, uh, she was not allowed to touch or wear any jewelry. So she couldn't accept the gift. But she asked the king to offer all the jewelry to the Buddha instead. Now the king was also a very loyal and devout follower of the Buddha. So without much hesitation, he agreed. And uh, he followed the queen to see the Buddha. And when they went before the Buddha to present him with all the gifts, uh, the Buddha graciously accepted. And then the king asked the Buddha why Queen Malika had such a beautiful presence while she was observing the eight precepts. And then the Buddha answered, the merits obtained from upholding the precepts are vast and long-lasting. Even the most wonderful aroma of the world's most fragrant sandalwood or lotus flower would still be much weaker than the aroma sent out from one who practices the eight precepts. Even if you took all the treasures of the entire world and gave them as offerings, all of the merit received would still not be as great as what Queen Malika attains in a single day of upholding the precepts. So we can see that the merits that come from upholding the precepts are boundless. They can't be compared with any worldly merits. The purity that you cultivate within yourself reveals through your appearance. And in fact, Sometimes we might come across some of these people. 
when you're just around them, there's a very special presence about them. Um, you have the feeling that they have a very noble and dignified presence when you're around them. Um, and this is not just physical attractiveness or physical beauty, but it's an air of uh, nobility and elegance. Um, and for someone who possesses the, those qualities, it's very likely that in their previous lives, um, they must have faithfully upheld the precepts. And the second story that I'd like to share with you before we head off for lunch uh, took place in southern India, 700 years after the Buddha entered Parinirvana. Now, at the time, there was a great dragon who was banished from the heavens and descended upon the human world. Now, this dragon caused a lot of disturbance in the country where it stayed. It destroyed towns and villages, and it instilled great fear in the people of the country. When it was not causing destruction, it resided in a cave deep in the mountains where no one dared to go. So when news of this dragon reached 500 arahats nearby, they decided to travel up to the cave where the dragon was staying to try to tame it and to force it out of the country. Now, these 500 arahats were not ordinary beings. They all possessed great supernatural powers. So when they reached the cave, while in deep meditation, they used their special powers to try to tame the dragon. But even with the collective effort of 500 great arahats, the dragon cannot be tamed. It was just too fierce and powerful for the arahats to handle. So just when they were planning to retreat, an arahat was walking up the hill and after he learned about what had happened, he approached the lair of the dragon and he shouted out, O oh dragon, do you not see what evil karma you have committed, destroying towns and causing great fear in our people? Do you see this as the path to happiness, to your freedom? If you really want freedom and happiness, then you must leave immediately. You must repent for your wrongful deeds and follow the way of the great Tathagata. So upon hearing these words, the dragon rose up and he left without a single word. So after the dragon left, the 500 arahats were in shock and in complete awe about what had just happened. And so they approached the arahat and they asked him, all of us arahats have been liberated from the fetters of samsara. So how come even with all our supernatural powers combined, this dragon would not move as much as a hair's breadth? But with a few words of admonishment from you, the dragon has left without a single act of defiance. So then the arahat went on to explain, since the time that I lived the secular life, I had been faithfully observing the precepts. Even the minor dukkata precepts, I dare not violate. For in my eyes, they are just as important as the four major precepts. So we can see that even the combined supernatural powers of 500 arahats cannot compare with one who has faithfully upheld the precepts. So when you follow the precepts, you're not just held in high esteem and respected by 
your family and friends, but you're also respected by all the beings in the heavenly realms, just like the dragon in the story. And when you've earned other people's respect, and naturally, the words that you say will have a certain level of weight and power behind it. And in this case, for someone like the Arahad who had spent many, many lifetimes faithfully upholding the precepts, whatever he said carried so much weight that even the most fierce and difficult to tame dragon could not disobey his command. And so we can see that the benefits of upholding the precepts are boundless. During our uh, discussion next time, we'll uh, go straight into uh, the very first precept, which is uh, abstaining from killing. And we'll talk about uh, all the specific factors um, necessary uh, to constitute a violation of this precept. And we'll go into details on the exceptions and the scenarios where uh, this precept would not be violated.